You might have heard of the slogan, Red Bull gives you wings. But it turns out that actually doesn't. Um, in 2013, an American consumer of the energy drink filed a lawsuit on the basis of it having dishonest advertisement. Um, and guess what? Uh, Red Bull lost the, the lawsuit. Um, and they were facing, apparently, I think, up to $13 million in compensation to their uh, consumers. Now, this might be a bit silly of a story, but there are many things in this life and in this world that promise us stuff, but it turns out that they don't really satisfy or they don't really keep their promise. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, speaks of something similar to this. He says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really, really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There are something we grasped at in the first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. He goes on to say, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. If a baby feels hunger, there's such thing as food. If a duckling desires to swim, there is such thing as water and so on and so on. And he says, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse, to suggest the real, to point to the real thing. And my question to you this evening is, what do you long for? What are your deepest desires? What is it that you are really looking for? Behind all that you are seeking to do in this life, what is it that truly, truly you long for? What motivates you? And this evening we will be looking at how Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly satisfy our souls. And we will be looking at it under three headings as a good Presbyterian. Number one will be setting the scene. The second heading is the diagnosis. And the third heading, a divine remedy. So look at me, look with me, verse one says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, as the plot continues in the gospel narrative of John, we first see the curtains fold as we prepare for the next scene. We begin the next scene with a change of scenario. The previous verses in chapter 3 give us more context of what was going on. We are told that after Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and they remained there and his disciples were baptizing. And in the midst of all of that, a discussion arose between some of John, that being the Baptist, 
and a Jew. And in result of that discussion, his disciples came to John and said, Rabbi, do you, do you remember that man across the Jordan that you were bearing witness to? Um, yeah, so, so he's, his disciples are baptizing and uh, everybody's going after him. And man, I mean, we're, we're losing people here, John. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but we're losing people here. To which John responded, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The spotlight's not on me, John said. I told you guys, I am not the Christ, but that man. Oh, that man, he is the one who comes from above. He utters the words of God. He is the one sent from God who gives the spirit without measure. The father loves him and has given all things into his hand. He is the Christ. He must increase, but I must decrease. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In light of this, we're told that the news spread across the land to the point that even Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, became aware of the situation. One commentator puts it like this. They, the, the Pharisees, were watching him and taking note, even from a distance. If they took great interest in the work of the Baptist, how much more the activities of Jesus who not only had recently cleansed the temple and survived the challenge with Nicodemus, but was now the greater threat, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So Jesus, after having learned of this situation, he decides to, to go to Galilee, probably to flee from further conflict with the Pharisees or to avoid polarization with uh, John's disciples. And we come to verse 4 now, where it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, when I was studying this text, um, the word had just stood out. It just popped out. And and I came to, to wonder, is there any meaning in this word? Why is this word had placed here? Because if you look, even in John's Gospel, a few chapters back, it, it says, uh, for example, that Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Or another example, Jesus simply went up and went to Jerusalem. But here it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And why is this? Well, some scholars um, argue that it was purely on geographical reasons, uh, since that the shortest route from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria. The only alternative would be to, to cross the Jordan near the Jericho, travel north up the east bank through largely Gentile territory and then cross back to the west bank bank, near the Lake of Galilee. Again, popular commentators have sometimes insisted that this route was the customary route for Jewish travelers. So great was their aversion to the Samaritans. Josephus, a a famous first century historian, however, provides ample assurance that indeed the antipathy between both people was true. But also Jews would sometimes prefer the shorter route. So the question again is, why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? Was it geography? Well, possibly that could have weighed in. But allow me to suggest another reason, and that is of divine providence. The gospel has already made clear that the activities of Jesus are founded upon something greater than pure circumstance. We see that in the episode of of the wedding at Cana where Jesus replies to his mother, woman, My time has not yet come. There is an hour and there is a place, and we as good Presbyterians know 
that nothing is by chance in God's world. We know that there is no such thing as a coincidence in God's plans. It is all woven in the divine tapestry of providence. But what is providence? Question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. Also, chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Let me sneak in a quote by Charles Hans Spurgeon, which is a very dear quote for me. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the char from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. Dear brethren, I speak to you this evening that each and every one of you are not here by chance or by mere circumstance. You are here because before the foundation of the world, the Lord ordained that you would be here, sat in the very same seat that you are right now, next to the people that you are. God saw and he ordained such things. Remember the words of the Lord to Nathaniel. Before Philip called you, you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Dear brother, the Lord saw you even before you were born. Before the big time, he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing escapes from his providence, from his fatherly hand. But I turn to you tonight that you might be facing a, a hard providence in your life. Perhaps struggling with the weight of your decisions, um, wondering how on earth you ended up in London. Or whatever it might be that may be afflicting you this evening. Once again, I reaffirm you that you are not here by chance. And whatever is going on in your life is not coincidence or pure randomness. But it comes from his fatherly hand. In fact, all things work for the goodness of those who love him. And the question is, do you believe that? The question is, do you believe in the character of God and who he has revealed himself to be to you as a trustworthy, loving, kind God? Do you trust his providence in your life? In these past months, I have made Samuel Rutherford my companion in my commuting to church and highly recommend you pick up a copy of uh, this book. It's called The Loveliness of Christ. Uh, It is a small casket stored with many, many jewels. I believe it does a really good job in preparing uh, the heart for for the Lord's Day. So if you can, uh, I recommend you pick up a a copy of that book. But before we move on to the next verse, I would like to quote from, from this book. He says, This water was in your way to heaven and written in your Lord's book. 
ye behoved to cross it, and therefore kiss his wise providence. Let not the senses of men who see but the outside of things, and scarce well that, abate your courage and rejoicing in the Lord. How be it? Your faith seeth the black side of providence, yet it hath a better side, and God shall let you see it. Even though we see only the black side of providence many times, the Lord will allow us to see the other side, but as he says, may we kiss his wise providence in our lives. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. We read that Jesus came to this town, and John gives us a point of reference here, and that is he mentions the name of Jacob, Jacob's well. And in doing that, he he gives us a different kind of map. He connects the place within the history of God and his people. The setting for this encounter is not merely first century Samaritan soil, but the ground which God had been toiling upon for centuries. And then we read this remarkable statement. So Jesus wearied from his journey. We find the creator of the universe by whom all things were made. The one who, by the power of his word, upholds everything. We find him tired and weary. Now you may ask, what is this? How can, why, how can this be? And the answer to that is, this is the incarnation. This is God made flesh. Our Lord humbled himself for our sake. He was exhausted and he was thirsty. And he, he done that in order that we would not be thirsty, that we would ha- gain access to this gift of living water that we will see in a few verses. And now try and picture this scene with me. It is the middle of the day. The sun is scorching hot, an arid land, a desert-like land, on soil upon which God has already worked. And there we find the Christ sat at the well of Jacob. And now comes into scene a Samaritan woman. And our Lord asks her for water to drink. Now this may sound just like a, a more piece of information to the text, but as we will see in verse 9, um, this was would have caused utter shock to the first century reader. Uh, verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Some Jews would never even use an utensil that was managed by a Samaritan. And to explain this this feud, we, we must go back to the Old Testament. If you remember, the kingdom of Israel was split between the northern and the southern kingdom. King Omri named the capital of the northern kingdom Samaria. In 722 BC, the Assyrians then captured uh, Samaria and deported the Israelites into exile. Uh, Then they settled foreigners into the land and those foreigners married with the remaining Israelites and that led into the adaptation of the worship of God with the gods of Babylon. 
They mix their customs, they mix their religion. And after the exile, Jews returning to their homeland, the remains of the southern kingdom, viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels and half-breeds, whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. But also in about 400 BC, they erected a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem, uh, Mount Gerizim. And by the first century, there had been almost two centuries of fights and even war crimes committed against each other. And if the fact of it being a Samaritan wasn't enough, we're talking about a Samaritan woman. Just so you may understand the context of this, this is what first century rabbinic tradition had to say about Samaritan uh, women. The daughters of the Samaritans are menstruates from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. So we find Jesus wearied at the Jacob's well, under the midday sun, talking to a Samaritan woman. And that is our scene. And now that the scene is set, we'll go to our second point, the diagnosis. In reply to the woman's question, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. It is indeed surprising that a Jew would ask a Samaritan for a cup of water. But how much more surprising the fact that this woman did not ask him. After all, this is Jesus, the living Christ before her. To which the the woman responds, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep, in fact, probably more than 100 feet deep. Where do you get this living water? So we have Christ offering living water to this woman. And the woman says, I, I, I don't see a bucket there. I don't think you're going to be able to, to get this water. And likewise, Nicodemus, the woman doesn't really seem to understand what our Lord is saying. She doesn't know who is before her. Imagine being before the creator of the universe and having him offer you living water. Now, this isn't the point of this verse, but if you would indulge with me for a moment in a brief point of application, isn't this the root of our the lack of the knowledge of God. The Old Testament prophet says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, for not knowing who he is, not knowing him as the unchangeable, eternal, glorious, all-powerful, all-satisfying, holy, merciful, loving, kind God who is meek and lowly, who yet is transcendent and holy, but abides with a contrite and broken spirit. Oh, dear brethren, knowing him changes everything. Knowing who God is changes everything in our lives. But Jesus insists, look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, at this point, you, you think the woman would understand, like, Jesus is clearly not talking about the water from the well. But to our surprise, she replies, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I mean, these people are not talking about the same thing here. They're talking about two different things. The woman is failing to grasp her true need and, and failing to grasp who is before her. And our Lord, in his mercy, insists. But this time, he uses a different strategy. He touches on a sensitive topic. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, 
Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, before we look at this, there are some things that I would like uh, to point out. The exact sin of this woman must be extracted carefully. Um, The verse says nothing about her being a prostitute, as it is commonly assumed. The Judaic system did not allow women to divorce their husbands. Only men could file a divorce against uh, their husbands. Nevertheless, something happened in this woman's life. Sin is definitely being addressed here. The fact that she comes to draw water at midday is something rather uncommon, for the women would usually come in the morning or in the late afternoon to to avoid the the heat of the sun. And perhaps this woman, she she came at this time to avoid public shame. And the fact that in in verse 19, she she quickly quickly changes subjects to, to avoid perhaps this sensible topic could indicate that there's something going on. Perhaps her former husband's died or divorced her for some reason. But Jesus points out that her current partner was not her legal husband. But he does this not to to shame her, but to, to help her to see her true need, to help her to understand what he is saying to her. And here we have our diagnosis. I believe Jesus brings this up to point out that she was looking in the wrong places to quench her thirst. We all thirst. We all hunger. It is a universal experience. But the problem is not thirsting and hungering in itself. The problem is what we use to quench our hunger and what we use to quench our thirst. Man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. Augustine, in his famous work, Confessions, in the very first page, strikes us with that piercing statement. For thou hast made us for thee. And our hearts are restless till it finds its rest in thee. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Our hearts are restless. We long for more. We have an aching desire in our hearts that nothing seems to quench. Things might quench it for a while. But the restlessness, the thirst, the hunger soon returns. And we see this everywhere. We hear the cries for satisfaction. We hear, we hear the pleas for rest. And if I may, I would like to quote from the great Irish poet, Bono Vox, in the beloved song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The poet says, I have climbed highest mountains. I have run f- through the fields only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing in her fingertips. I've burnt like fire this burning desire. I have spoken with the tongue of angels, held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night, it was cold as a stone. And he says, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. We hear the poet's endeavours to find the end of his aching search. He has travelled afar, he, he looked to his lover, and he has even wandered into religious experiences. 
In other words, he has tried everything and everywhere, but nothing seems to satisfy him. Nothing seems to quench his thirst. He doesn't seem to find what he is looking for. No wonder this is a beloved song because it's in many ways relatable to the human condition of thirst and hunger. But hear the words of the prophet echo. The prophet says, thus says the Lord, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns from themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And this is our sin. This is the reason of our human misery. We have forsaken the fountain of living waters. And you know what the tragedy about this is? Is that our poor and small and little cisterns don't hold any water. They don't satisfy. They don't quench our thirst. They leave us with nothing, nothing to sustain life. There is no life without water. And our cisterns don't have water. Like sand running in between our fingers, we are, so are our broken cisterns. God has living, eternal, all-satisfying water, but we have preferred our stagnant and muddy water. There is another name for this sin, and that is idolatry. We look towards what is not God as if it were God. Instead of looking unto God for the satisfaction of our souls, we look to his gifts. The Lord knew the Samaritan woman. He saw her, and he knows you, and he sees you, sees you. And I don't. I, I don't know what's going on in your heart or in your, in your head. I, I don't know what are your deepest desires or your deepest longings. But the Lord does. The Lord does know them. Perhaps you might be looking to your career or perhaps you might be looking to your family, your spouse, your children, or even your future plans saying, when this, this happens or, or, or such and such succeeds, then I will be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. But those things... Do not satisfy. In fact, nothing beyond God can live up to the expectancy of the divine. And what I mean by that is created things cannot give us what only God can. Like somebody who's drowning in the middle of the sea that clings to to anything that is thrown to him, so do we cling to anything that is thrown to us in order to find satisfaction and the quenching of our soul's thirst. It is a cliche, but nevertheless true. Man has a God-shaped hole that nothing can fill. Only God can. Like I mentioned in this passage, it has echoes of the Old Testament story. There are many, many striking accounts of the unfaithfulness of Israel. We saw this morning of how God made a covenant and the people broke the covenant of God. But for me, one of the most striking Accounts is that of Ezekiel chapter 16. Here in chapter 16 of Ezekiel, Jerusalem is portrayed as a baby that no one pitied. Cast out in the field, for she was abhorred on the day she was born. But the Lord saw Jerusalem. The Lord made her flourish like a plant. The Lord washed and cleaned her, covered her and dressed her. The Lord adorned her with ornaments and lavished her with fine jewelry, gold and silver, fine linen and silk, and fed her with the the best flour, honey and oil. 
But then Jerusalem trusted not in the Lord, but in her own beauty. The very beauty that the Lord lavished upon her was what she trusted in. And then she went off after other gods. In fact, the Lord says that Jerusalem went after anybody who passed by. She broke her covenant with God. She was unfaithful to the one who only did her good. To the one who never broke his covenant even for a second. She was unfaithful to him. Like C.S. Lewis pointed out, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But let me tell you, there is good news. There is a divine remedy. Look with me at verse 10 and verse 13. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has and he is the one who gives the remedy. And the remedy is living water. And you may be asking, now, what is living water? And how on earth do, do I get this living water? I would like to highlight three words that Jesus, is, that Jesus used in, in these two verses. Uh, the gift of God, living water, and eternal life. Note in verse 10 that the gift is of God. And in verse 14, Jesus says that he is the one who gives the water. And somehow this water is miraculous. To everyone who drinks it, it becomes a spring of living water that wells up to eternal life. In other words, this is a Trinitarian gift. The gift of God is salvation, eternal life, culminating in the gift of the Spirit, given both by the Father, who initiated the divine action, and by the Son, who was the agent of the divine activity. But remember that also that our Lord described himself as the spring of living water. As the the, the spring that was forsaken by his people, like we saw in Ezekiel 16. The Lord had a response to Israel in that chapter. He responds, despite your unfaithfulness, I will remember my covenant. And I will establish an everlasting covenant. The Old Testament prophets looked towards a day where the Lord would make a new covenant with his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the one they broke. I will write my law in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will give them a new heart, a new spirit, and I will put within you. And remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, says the Lord. The Lord said, Behold, that day is coming. And indeed, that day 
did come. That day was manifested in the first coming of Jesus Christ, where we see the Father's plan unfold, where the theme of heaven's praises was robed in frail humanity. See Christ make his way to the cross. See the just die for the unjust. See the faithful die for the unfaithful. See the Holy One die for sinners. The one who knew no sin to be made sin for us. See the Son of Man thirst upon the cross in order that me and you would have access to his living water, to quench the thirst of our souls, to drink of this fountain. Christ came and died, bearing upon him the wrath of God the Father, the wrath that we sinners deserved. See Christ through his sacrifice, tearing the curtain, restoring the way to the Father. See the price of our redemption. The prophet says on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. On the Mount of Crucifixion, a fountain was opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. From above, heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Praise be to our God. Hear now the voice of Jesus say to you, If anyone in this room thirsts, let him come to me. If anyone hungers, let him come to me. For I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Dear brothers, this is not advertisement for Jesus. This is not a give Jesus a try situation. No, no, no. If the words of 2 Corinthians 5 are true, and let me tell you, they are true. We are ambassadors of Christ as if God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is God speaking to you this night. Oh, that you would hear the voice of Jesus this evening, that the words of Christ would echo through this building, but I pray that it would echo into the deep parts of your heart. Hear the words of Christ saying, come ye, come ye who thirst. With joy and gladness you will bring from the well of salvation. Come to Christ, all who hunger and all who thirst. I've quoted an Irish poet this evening, but allow me to quote another poet. This time a a Scotsman. Uh, And he says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give. The living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Bonovox might have not found what he was looking for, and I believe Horatius Bonar did find what he was looking for. But the question tonight is, I found what you were looking for. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are nothing in your sight. We are the dust of this earth. We are sinners. Yet you consider us. Yet you think of us. Yet you have sent your son to save us. 
Yet you sing over us, as the Old Testament prophet says. Lord, we confess our thirst and our hunger to you. We acknowledge that we were made for you and that nothing can satisfy our soul until we find our satisfaction in you. Lord, pour your spirit this evening. Quench the thirst and hunger of our souls that we may be able to say that my thirst was quenched and my soul revived. O Lord, revive our souls and, and revive our hearts And let us see Jesus Christ, Lord, until the day comes where we will see him face to face. Until that day comes, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.